I want you to turn in your Bibles back to Isaiah 9. We were there last week and we're going to be there again this week. But I'm going to focus on a different section. We kind of went straight to the promise of who Jesus would be last week. That yes, he would be... um, He would be that prince of peace. He would be that mighty God, that wonderful counselor, that eternal father. Those are all the things he is. That's what he was promised to be and that's what he is. We've been going through the prophecies that led up to Jesus' birth. Because in the prophecies about Jesus' birth, number one, we see that God keeps his promises. And and you, you could do the math. There are folks that have done the math. And the probability of one person fulfilling all those Old Testament, Old Testament prophecies is, is impossible, if not for God. It, it, it's astronomical. I've looked at some, so, so depending on which prophecies you consider are messianic prophecies, so the math may differ based on how you interpret one scripture or another, but when you break it down and you do the math, there's way too many zeros than there's ever been people. For what are the odds that one person would fulfill all these prophecies? And yet Jesus did. And so God keeps his promise. God has been writing this story since the beginning. Since the very beginning of humanity, he's been writing the story of our rescue. Because almost from the beginning, we messed it up. It didn't take long. You know, sometimes in the movie, it it takes to like the middle of the movie until they really mess something up. And and then they got to fix it. We messed it up in like like right after the previews. We were... (laughs) We, it's pretty quick. And yet God says, I will send somebody. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescue you. And the way he did it, you know, God could have just used one guy or one lady just to prophesy and say everything. And then that would be it. But he, he, he sprinkled these breadcrumbs and he gave these pieces of prophecy through different voices in different times. And, and when they all pieced together, they brought us a picture of who Jesus would be. So like, what are the odds? Okay, Balaam. Poll, quick poll. Good guy or bad guy? See? The answer to that question depends on how you view, how much you like the story where the donkey talks. <laughs> I will tell you the last thing we hear about Balaam is not good. I, I'm going to vote my vote. Now, you folks who said he's a good guy, you, you're the gracious and compassionate people amongst us, and we need you. I'm going to say bad guy. I'm going to say bad guy because when he died, it was in the good column in the scripture. They're like, oh, good. They killed this guy. Um, <laughs> but he's a complicated character. And here's why you might say he is a good guy, because he at least had the integrity to say, if God has blessed people, I can't curse them. He said that while he was trying to take money to curse people, which generally puts you in the villain's parking lot, right? I mean, like, he was getting paid to curse a whole group of people. Good folks don't do things like that. He gets up before God, and he says, I'm about to curse these guys. I took some money. This king paid me. I can't do it. They're blessed. He comes back to the king. He says, I tried to curse them. I can't. God won't let me curse them. The king says, okay, well, if I give you more money? He says, well, that's worth a try. Okay, I'll go back. (laughs) I came back. I I tried. King's like, what if you stand over here? Oh, location, location, location. (laughs) Right. What if I stand over here? 
Uh, curse them from here. It's probably, probably just a bad angle. Can't curse people from west going east. Got to go the other way. All right, I'll try. And, and no, he comes back. But at the last time he does it, last time he tries, because he keeps trying, the last time he tries, he looks over at him and he sees something. He says, oh, behold, I see a people. And he starts to see who these people are. Because he, before, he just thought they were a wandering tribe of people trespassing on someone's property. All of a sudden, he sees who they are, and he's taken aback, and he begins to prophesy, probably against his will. He begins to prophesy about who they are. And did you know, from that guy, from that prophecy where he took a bribe to try to curse them, that's where the prophecy that a star would rise came from. He prophesied that a star would rise, and God would bring a redeemer through these people. It's probably that prophecy that guys like Daniel, when he was in Far East, began to share. The Bible says that Daniel became chief of the Magi at one point, which is kind of weird. You might not have known that was part of his job description, but he was chief of the Magi. It, it, the, the literal uh, term in Chaldean was Rob Mug, chief Magi. And uh, somehow his little teachings got embedded in there long enough that hundreds of years later, the Magi are still studying these prophecies and looking for it. God gives a prophecy to um, a kid who says, you know, I'm just a kid. What right do I have to speak to anybody? He gives a prophecy to uh, uh, um, all sorts of folks throughout all sorts of generations. And, and you see it pop up here and you see it pop up there. He, he gives prophecies to people that, that don't want to be used by God. He gives prophecies to those that have given themselves purely to be used by God. He gives a prophecy to a man in exile. He gives a prophecy to a, to a man who's about to be thrown in a pit. He gives a prophecy to all these people. And all of a sudden, when you piece them all together throughout the history, throughout, throughout thousands of years, you piece them together. And, the, and these are what the, the Jewish people are waiting for, the Messiah. And here's what he looks like. And he showed up and he kept every one of those promises. What are the odds? That's pretty amazing. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, even when he didn't know he was prophesying about Jesus at first. Isaiah simply wanted to reassure the king that the people of Israel and Judea, uh, Judah wouldn't be fully wiped out, that God would preserve the line. But in the process of prophesying, he goes past the immediate, and he goes into the eternal, and he begins to prophesy about the Messiah. In fact, if we look at the book of Isaiah, he prophesies more about the Messiah than anywhere else. How rich is it? It's so good. We look at it, and we feel like, man, this guy, how could this guy see it so clearly? And yet the scripture said, and I shared this last week, the scripture says Peter wrote that these prophets still didn't know what they were looking into. They had clues and they were searching and they were looking and saying, who am I talking about? I want to know this. And it says it was revealed that they were prophesying for our sake, for our benefit, for these times to, to whom the ends of the age have come. We're, we're at the last stage of history of, of, of this, this series of earth. We're at the end of it. We've been at the end of it for a while too, right? So your definition of the end and my definition of the end might be different. Because I know this, that the way I interpret it, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, this is what the prophet Joel is prophesying. And he says, these are in the last days. So if Peter was on the day of Pentecost saying we're in the last days and it's been going on for 2,000 years, that, that's a long section of history. And yet, 
if I'm doing the math right, we're closer to the end than Peter was. Because that's the way time works. At least right now. So we're at the end of the end. The last of the last. We still look at this and we read it like it's, we're reading yesterday's headlines. Isaiah chapter 9. I want you to see what he says about Jesus. So number one, God keeps his promises. But number two... What God said that Jesus would be, what God said the Messiah would be, Emmanuel would be, what he said that this Savior would be is what he is to us right now. So it's important that we look into these prophecies because, you know, really, we still need what he said he'd be. We still need Jesus to be all of these things. He is these things, but you need him to be these things to you. You need him to be the wonderful counselor. You need him to be the mighty God. You need him to be the eternal father. You need him to be the prince of peace. If he's not that to you, you're missing out on who he is. Isaiah chapter 9, he starts off saying in verse 1, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, He shall make it glorious. Now, some of you may have a King James Bible, and it may say something different in your King James Bible, and there's a reason for that. Um, There's a word for glory that is, in Hebrew, the word for glory is basically the word for heavy, weighty, right? Because the glory of God is not a light thing, it's a weighty thing. So the more glory there is, the heavier it is, the weightier it is. So So the King James translators looked at that and said, Uh, Early on, he treated them with contempt, which means like, you know, he treated them lightly, like they they didn't matter that much. Um, But then it says, but later on, he's going to make it weighty. Well, they took it as like, oh, no, (laughs) later on, he made it even worse on them. He said he put a bigger burden on them. But every other translator seen it a different way. And I kind of agree with every other translator that that the reality of what he's saying, because you look at the contrast, he says early on, they were treated with contempt. But later on, he's going to make it glorious. And the way we know that is because he goes on to explain why. Land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, Isaiah is prophesying in a time where Israel is still a nation. Israel's still a people. You guys know, maybe you don't know, but uh, after Solomon died... The kingdom of Israel was divided into 10 tribes of Israel and and, and the tribes of Judah here and two tribes over here, the southern kingdom. And so Israel and Judah were split. Now Israel, you know, uh, some of our men and men's group were going through the book of Ezekiel and Ezekiel had to lie on his side for like 390 days for the sins of Israel, but only like 45 for the sins of Judah. So Israel was worse off. And they actually got almost, almost obliterated because they got taken by the Assyrians. And when the Assyrians took them, the Assyrians were much harsher than the Babylonians. The Assyrians, like I've said before, made the Nazis look like Girl Scouts. The Assyrians were bad dudes. And they would just wipe you out. They carried them away and they wiped everything. They sowed the land with salt. They burned things down. Whereas in the land of Judah... They were taken captive much later by the Babylonians. And when the Babylonians took them, the Babylonians' method was, we're not going to wipe anybody out. We're just going to assimilate them and make them like us. And so the Babylonians took the the Jewish people, the, the Jews from Judah, and they treated them pretty well. I mean, not great, but all right. 
And eventually the people of Judah came back home. But the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, never really came home until recently. So it talks about, we, we hear people talk about lost tribes. You know, these, these, where did these tribes go? Well, you know, they're still around. But they didn't survive like Judah survived. So Zebulun and Naphtali, this land was some of the first land to be captured and wiped out by the Assyrians. It was a land of great darkness. Now here's the cool thing. This area became known, when we talk about it now, we talk about it as Galilee, where Jesus set up shop. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but it says, in earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. What's so interesting is Isaiah was saying this hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus' day. But when Jesus was walking, they still called it Galilee. They actually did call it Galilee of the Gentiles because it was an area where um, not only Israelite or Jewish people were there, but a lot of other Gentile nations had sort of assimilated into that area. It was kind of run down. Remember, the, remember when they came to Jesus and somebody said, he's from Nazareth, and somebody said, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's like their town motto. Can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, Edmonton had City of Champions for a while. <laughs> they had to get rid of it because it wasn't really relevant for a while. They used to win stuff. There were city of champions, you know, Lloydminster, Canada's only border city, Tisdale, land of rape and honey. They changed that. I'm, I'm not making a joke. That was really their, doesn't matter. They were talking about canola, guys. Talk about canola. Get your mind out of the gutter. But the land of Zebulun, this Galilee, this Nazareth, Capernaum, this area, they said, can anything good come from there? It's the sticks. It's not, it, it's not the place where good things come from. And he says, I'll make it glorious. In verse 2, he says this. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. I want to read that to you again just so it sinks in. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. What a, what a great promise. But God is not afraid of the dark. He's not moving away saying, I will work in places where it's sort of dimly lit and I'll make it a bit brighter. He's looking for dark places that he can light up. And it says this, you shall multiply the nation. You will increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. And he goes on and he talks about this is why this is all going to happen. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given. So he's equating the light not to a massive change in empire, not into, a, you know, suddenly people are just going to wake up and get it. He's not talking about a new philosophy coming through. He's saying this is what's going to happen that's going to bring light to a dark place. A kid's going to be born. And that child is going to change everything. 
Because that child is not just a child. He said he will be called the son of the most high God. That's who he is. One of the first things that's really said prophetically in the New Testament was when the angel came to John, or John's father, Zechariah, and said, you're going to have a kid. But one of the first things that's said prophetically by a human being was then Zechariah opened his mouth when his baby was born. And it's one of my favorite prophecies in the whole Bible. I love it. You know, good things happen when you shut up for nine months. When you finally talk, you have something to say. I want to read you what he said in Luke 1. Like, nobody try that. I mean, don't, don't test the theory. But Zechariah prophesied this in Luke 1, 67. It says, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. I want you to see that Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. Jesus hadn't risen from the dead yet. Jesus hadn't even been born yet. But in Zechariah's prophecy and in his mind and his heart, it was done. He did it. John was step one in that process because John was the voice that was going to get everybody ready for the Messiah. So Zechariah doesn't prophesy, you know, in 33 years, he's going to accomplish redemption. Because faith doesn't say, in, in, you know, when I finally see it with my eyes, then it's done. This is the moment he says he is done. He kept his word. And he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he visited us. He visited us. I mean, this is an important way of saying it. He visited us. And he accomplished redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, he's talking to his son, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High God. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Now, I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, sunrise is capitalized. Because sunrise was not an event, it was a person. Sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What a beautiful statement. The sunrise is going to visit us. He's, talking, he's, he's speaking from a place amongst the people that are greatly oppressed and, and many of them think that their oppression is the Romans. Just like their oppression before the Romans was the Seleucids, Seleucids, or how, Seleucids, Seleucids, however you want to say it. They, they figured the oppression before that was the Greeks. Before that, it was whoever. But in reality, the oppression that they're facing, the enemies that he's talking about, he may not even know it, but the enemies he's talking about is not a bunch of soldiers with Italian accents. The issue he has, the issue his people have, is a darker oppression because it's darkness covering the land. 
You know, Rome didn't bring the darkness. Alexander the Great didn't bring the darkness. The darkness was not a result of an invading force. The darkness was a result of what Jesus said later on. He says, you guys have closed your eyes and you've closed your ears. And all of a sudden, darkness has settled over these people. But the hope here is sunrise is coming. Sunrise is coming. And he'll visit us. And he will shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death He'll shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and he will guide our feet into the way of peace. You know, we talked about it last week, that if you want peace, everybody says, I want peace, I need peace, I got to have peace, I'm lacking peace. But you can't have peace until you're willing to embrace the prince of peace. And the prince of peace means his rule will bring you to a place of peace. That government is a government of peace. So here he says, here's how you're going to find peace. He will guide your feet into the way of peace. He's not going to bring peace to the path you're currently on. He will change your path. He'll guide your feet. How will he guide you? By shining light. Showing you the way in which you should go. But so far, they don't know. People in darkness, you know, here's the deal. We think... I know the scripture says men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. So people like to hide in the darkness because they're doing bad things. But when we're talking about spiritual darkness, what are we talking about? We're talking about spiritual blindness. We're talking about not being able to see, not knowing what you're doing, not knowing why you're doing it, not understanding. So all throughout the scripture, when it talks about darkness, it talks about no one understands. They don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand. You know, even Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing right now. That they're in darkness, right? The scripture says the God of this world has blinded the hearts of those, blinded their eyes so they would not believe the light of the gospel. So there is a blindness and it causes you to act different. If you were to blindfold, you know, blindfold Brother Eric right now, put a blindfold on him, spin him around and say, hey, go out the back door. Well, he might eventually get there, but he's not going to look like, you know, a put together guy getting there because he's going to run into chairs, he's going to run into people, he's going to run into walls because you walk different when you can see where you're going. So we look around at the world, we say, why are people acting like this? Why is it so crazy? Why are people doing such terrible things? Because they can't see. They're in darkness. When you can see, you walk different. The Lord gave us light. He is the light. When you see, you walk different. We walk based on how we see. That's why it's important that we're hearing the word this morning. Right? I mean, we know the word of God creates things in us, right? Just like God said light and light was created. When God's word is spoken to us, it creates in us. The scripture says that faith comes when we hear the word. But also what happens is, is that he shines light. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So all of a sudden, we're seeing things and we understand, oh, that's why I've been hitting that wall over and over and over again because I didn't know I was following a path that was not his path. It was my path and it was, I was walking in darkness. So I kept doing the things of darkness. The Bible says the deeds of darkness. I did the deeds of darkness because I was in darkness. Paul says, why are you surprised that the world is messed up? They're in the world. He says, we shouldn't be judging the world. We should be judging ourselves. 
The world's always going to act like the world. They're in darkness. That scripture I quoted, though, where it says, the God of this world has blinded those that don't believe so that they would not believe, it doesn't end there, which is the coolest thing. It keeps going. Do you know what he says right after that? But God, the same God who said, light, come out of darkness, has shone his light into our hearts to show the glory of God in the face of Christ. Which means we're sent to dark places. We are assigned to dark places. You know, throughout history, there's always been groups of Christians that say, it's getting dark, let's leave. Let's get, where, is the, where are the escape pods? You know, let's get out of here. Right? Let's just, let's just jet. But what does the scripture say? Jesus said, what did he say? What did he pray? In John 17, he said, Father, I don't ask that you take them away from the world that you take them out of the world. But I do ask that you keep them from the evil one. There's a parable of the sower that we all know, which is the sower sows the word, some falls on good ground, some falls on bad ground, or hard ground, stony ground, thorny ground, good ground. But there's another parable of the sower that we don't talk about as much. And Jesus describes it and he says this. When he describes the parable, here's what he says. He says, the seed are the sons or the children of the kingdom which the Father has sown, and the field is the world. So think about this. You are the seed that God threw into the world so that it would change the soil that it lands in. We talked about this scripture earlier this year. The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything and is in everything. So God wants to be in everything. He wants to fill Lloyd Minster. He wants to fill the oil field. He wants to be in all these places, in every single corner, and all the dark places and all the dimly lit places. He wants to be there, and his method is to visit these places. And how is he going to visit these places? Is he going to send Gabriel to come down and just, you know, talk to him for a while? No, he's going to send his body. The church is his fullness. The church is his body. The fullness. The fullness means there's nothing missing there. He's the head. We're the body. We are the fullness of him who fills everything and is in everything. So how did God fix the darkness? He didn't fix the darkness by cutting it off. He fixed the darkness by visiting the darkness with light. Sunrise will visit us. Sunrise will visit us. I want you to go on to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, verse 13 says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now realize this. Matthew's writing this, understanding that his readers are going to make the link to prophecy, especially when he quotes it. But it's not called the land of Zebulun and Naphtali anymore. That would be like you going to Paris and saying, oh, the land of the Franks. Like, it's not that anymore. Walking through London saying, oh, the Celtic people are beautiful. You know, I mean, it's no longer that. That's a very ancient way to put it. But he's calling them that because he's he's bringing back to the remembrance. 
these tribes that were lost, these tribes that were taken away by the Assyrians, these tribes where God said, I've neg- in the past you've been treated with contempt, but I will make this place glorious. I, I love this. He took a place that was the most ghetto, dark place, and he says, I'm going to make it glorious. How will I make it glorious? I'll be there. And when I'm there, it's going to be a glorious place. Could you imagine that God wants to make Lloyd Minster glorious? I mean, when we hear that, I think we have a different way of looking at it. We'll say, well, okay, you want to glorify Lloyd Minster? No, that's not what I said. He's not glorifying Lloyd Minster. He's going to make it glorious because his people are there. And his name is being exalted. And the presence of God is in the city. And the presence of God is in the city because the people of God are in the city. He came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Literally, I think one of the better translations of that in the Greek is a light sprung up. A light sprung up. That, that paints a picture to me. You know what I mean? Light springing up in the darkest of places. Can I just tell you, if you are planning a place for your ministry headquarters, that's not where you go. If you're planning on people calling you the Messiah, you don't go there. They call you the king. That's definitely not where you want to go. That's not where you want to be made famous in, in Galilee. You don't want to set up there. That's not the place to launch. Go somewhere else that's got a little bit more dignity, go somewhere else that's got a little bit more uh, respect in the region. Galilee doesn't have it. You know how people knew that the disciples had been with Jesus when Jesus is on trial and Peter's walking through the, 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 the high priest courtyard and they say, whoa, he's one of them. He recognizes it because Peter has like a hillbilly accent, a Galilee accent. And everybody's like, whoa, I recognize that everywhere. Where are you from? (laughs) You're one of Jesus' guys, huh? It cost him points to come from Galilee because no one respected Galilee. People in Jerusalem looked down. Do you realize when the the, um, triumphal entry happened, when the great parade where Jesus rode in on a donkey, it was not Jerusalem people that were waiting for Jesus. Jerusalem people were like, who's that guy? It was all the people who'd come who'd seen Lazarus been raised from the dead, and it was these Galilee folks. See, Jesus had been doing for three years all this stuff in Galilee and even in the Decapolis region, and he'd made a couple trips into Jerusalem. He'd done some work there, but when he came to Jerusalem, people didn't know him. After all he did, Because in that period, he was almost hidden away in this dark land, this place nobody wanted to be. But I love the the wording here. The people who are sitting in darkness saw a great light. Isn't it interesting to you that um, when Isaiah said it, he didn't say they were sitting in darkness. He said they were walking in darkness. But when Matthew says it, they're not walking anymore. They've sat down. 
You, you ever been in a position where you didn't know where you were going and you walked around and you bumped into something, you walked around and you tripped over something and finally you just didn't take another step because you just realized, I don't know where I'm going. There's a reality that people who are first, put in, first in a place of darkness, they know it's dark. So they're at least trying to get out. But because it's dark, they can't get out. You know what I mean? You're trying. She don't know the way out. I know people like this. You, you do too. People that realize that their life is a mess. People that realize that I, I, I'm fallen away from, from God. I've fallen away from, from where I should be. And they're wandering around trying to find their way out of their mess. They're, they're trying to find a way out of addiction. They're trying to find a way out of their family issues. They're trying to find a way out of all these things. And they can't figure out a way. And, and it's frustrating for them because every time they make, you know, they try a little it backfires on them? Well, why? Because they're in darkness. They don't know the way out. Remember, it was the sunrise that was going to guide our feet into the way of peace. You can't find the path on your own. You're in darkness. You can't find the path in, on your own. And so they're wandering around. But by the time Jesus comes to this region, they're no longer trying to find a way out of darkness. They've settled with darkness. They've sat down. If you want to look at our culture, we, we, we look at a culture that... Things, some things have improved over time. I'd say, I'd say we're, there are a couple things that have gotten better, but there's a lot of things that have gotten worse. As far as the, the understanding and the light of who God is and, and, and who we should be in that light. You know, I'm not saying I want to go back to the 50s. But by, by no means, I want to be right here where we are right now. But there have been some things that have gone backwards. And there was a time where people rallied against the darkness. They fought and they said, I don't want to be in darkness. I realize I'm in it, but I don't want to be here. But then there's also a point where people just give in and embrace the darkness. They just sit down. By the time Jesus came to Galilee, all the people that were looking for the Messiah lived at, live in other places. When he came to Galilee, the people... Were oppressed in every way. Financially, they weren't doing so well because the Romans had taxed them beyond their ability to pay. Respectively, they're not respected like, the, like Jerusalem is or even like places like Bethlehem would be. They're the place where you just, you, the rest of the, pure, the purists would say, you've been contaminated by the Gentiles over there. No one goes there to be a better person. And they just sat in it. What sprung up out of nowhere, seemingly, was the sunrise. Jesus settled here because this was the place that needed it the most. I wonder how we view ourselves in, in this way because so often we think, we think that our light is in great danger at all times, right? We think that our light is in danger of going out at any moment. When you consider that your light is not your light, really, it's, it's Jesus. And he's not going out. He's not going to fade. He can't be quenched as long as you're holding tight to him. Not compromising that, you're holding on to him and his word. What does Philippians say? In darkness and perversity, that we are shining as stars in a dark universe, holding fast to the word of life. That's how you keep from, from losing the light, is you hold fast to it, you hold on tight to it. But that light's not going anywhere. 
So in our efforts to preserve our own light that we think is fragile, we stay away from dark places. We stay away from, from we, we try to say, well, you know, let's just huddle together and get some light here. But Jesus said, if you're going to let your light shine, put it on a lampstand. It'll give light to everyone in the house. And those people in the house don't have their own lights. They're looking at yours. Now, eventually, if they're looking at yours, hopefully they will get their own because light is contagious. And light exposes darkness. And when people are exposed to light, they all of a sudden say, I didn't know I was in darkness. I've been sitting here for so long, I got used to it. And maybe the first time they saw light, they, they were mad. You know, you're like your teenager when you flip on the light in, in the morning. and He doesn't want to get up and he puts the blanket over his head. Because, he, you know, that light is harsh because his eyes aren't used to it yet. Peter says, you know, your friends that used to run with you in all sorts of excesses, they're mad that you're not doing it anymore. He says they revile you for it. Why? Because your light is now exposing their darkness. But the truth is that after that initial, ah, there are people that are going to want that. Jesus loved these people enough to visit them. I want us to take a cue from our Savior and realize that there will be people that are drawn to the light. There's people that came from far away to see Jesus. But, uh, we probably shouldn't just expect that everyone's going to come running to the light. Biblically, incarnationally, as far as Jesus is concerned, light went and visited people. Light went where darkness was. Darkness wasn't dark anymore because God visited them. How do you figure God's going to visit people today? It's not beyond God to show up in a dream or a vision. It's not beyond God to send an angel, but it is the exception, not the rule. His best, we might think his best would be the angel. That'd be more impressive. But his preferred, his best method is to send you. When you carry that light, you're not mad at people for being in darkness, right? Because they're in darkness, they don't know. You just know that they need light. Because I needed light, you needed light. You were in darkness. The Bible says we used to walk in darkness. We were walking on a path that we thought was our path. He says we were walking in darkness according to the prince and the power of the air. What's so weird about that is we thought it was our own path that we were making. Turns out, it was a path that was perfectly laid out by the bad guy. But now, we've been rescued from the domain of darkness. And we've been translated. Remember I said that a couple weeks ago. That the word there is not just journeyed from darkness to light. The word is the same word that, that he used when Philip was snatched out of one place and immediately found himself in another place. We were translated out of darkness and into light. That's how fast it could happen. The people who were sitting in darkness saw great light. Those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. God's not afraid of the dark. God's not afraid of the places that seem so 
lost and, and bereft and, and abandoned by God. How many times have you said this is a God-forsaken place? Hopefully you never said it about Lloyd Minster. But how many times have you heard somebody say this? God-forsaken place. No place is actually God-forsaken. Because God hasn't given up on the planet. And he says, man, he says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Like the waters cover the sea. So God does not have a plan for one section of the earth to know about him. He has a plan for the whole world to know about him. They still have to make their choice. But the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. What if we could say, God, make this place glorious. And what if when you said that, you didn't picture the obvious places where you think glory would show up? God, make it glorious, like, make Alberta glorious, like where the Rockies are. What if you pictured the darkest places? What if you picture the places that everybody just gave up on and said, God, make it glorious? How was he make it glorious? By visiting it with light. How's he going to visit with light? He's going to send his people. So we, we know people in Chicago who purposely found the most rundown neighborhood in Chicago, the most inner city rundown, all the businesses had left and they bought buildings and land there. And they were standing on this promise in Ezekiel 36. They said, I will take you to the abandoned, the ruined places and I will rebuild the ruins and I will make them like the Garden of Eden. So they went there. They bought an old mall. You can't have a mall there. It's just a, it's, it's losing money. There's nothing there. They buy the building. They start a business school. I think they call it like Joshua School or something like that, where people are going to come and they're going to train these people how to, how to know, how to know who they are in Christ. They're going to teach them who Jesus has made them to be. They're not the losers their teachers told them they were. They're not the losers that their society told them they were. They're going to take the people that everybody threw out and they're going to say, no, 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 you guys, can, you guys don't just have to like, praise God, you work at Wendy's, that's cool, that's awesome. But you want to go beyond that? If God wants you to go beyond that, we're going to train you how to do it. We're going to train you how to do that. So they're training these people how to do business and how to, I mean, these are people, they're going into the world, they're going out from this place that was abandoned and now light is radiating out of it. You know, Brother Kwong here, I visited some of the places that he and his brother had, had ministered to in Vietnam. And, and what I was so struck by was that all the people that were abandoned by the government, and you know, in a communist society, you're either helping or you're draining. And all the people that had been abandoned and thrown out, it seemed like the church embraced those people. But they didn't tell them, you will always be a drain. You will always be a drain, but it's okay, we'll take care of you. Now, they were teaching them because we saw many centers started by people who were the addicts brought in are now the guys starting the center for the other addicts. Because what they're telling them is you're not always going to be the drain. At some point, what's been given to you is going to be given to somebody else. So we are training you not just to get better, but to be a person that God can use to, to rescue somebody else out of darkness. What if we could dream this way? Can we dream this way? 
Now, step one, maybe some of you have big dreams. I, I pray that you do. I pray, I know that there's people here who dream big. And I know you're thinking about big things and I want you to. But can we also think about immediate things right now? Where are the dark places right now? Where are the dark places right now that you can go to tomorrow? Right? I'm not telling you you need to go sit at the strip club. Wouldn't hurt if someone's outside it though. You know? And maybe holding a sign up saying you're going to hell is not the best way. <laughs> right? This is not what Jesus did. I mean, he, he wasn't afraid to talk about hell. Don't get me wrong. He talked about it. But he brought him something. He brought him hope. He brought him life. How is God going to make these places glorious? By visiting it with his presence. Where does his presence go? Wherever we go. What if light could spring up? in places no one's looking for it. What if someone could say, I was sitting in darkness and I thought everybody left me. I thought I was abandoned by God. But sunrise visited me. Light visited me. And now I'm not in darkness anymore. The same God who said, light come out of darkness, has spoken to your heart, given you light. And all you gotta shine is the glory of God reflected in the face of Christ. That's it. Let's stand up together.